What's that smell? Smoke? Smoke? Everybody, I think I smell some smoke back here. secondary character. Hello. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Bidwabask, aka But I Don't Wanna Be a Secondary Character, and this is a podcast about the greatest sitcom of all time, Seinfeld. My name is Ivan. And I'm Stephen. And we are still holed up in our homes for the coronavirus lockdown, and obviously it's a very tumultuous time out there in the world, wherever you are, and uh, we do appreciate you being with us and listening to us. Indeed, and uh, if things are rough at the moment, we uh, hope things get better for you, and uh, we hope that this podcast can offer you, you know, 45 minutes ish of uh, a bit of distraction and joy absolutely we hope so we uh, we hope we can do our job for you anyway this week Stephen, we are talking about the fire season five episode 20 and oh boy Stephen, i forgot how much fire this episode actually is this just hits and hits and hits doesn't it yeah this episode is definitely fire for sure i love it i picked it last week yeah. and it lived up to how good i thought it was was going to be uh, kramer's monologue man that has to be probably the best scene of all of seinfeld yeah definitely a, a classic scene i think it's the mix of him describing what's happening and also the actions like him when he's pushing the the mugger away and also driving the bus and how he kicks him out the door everything is just perfect you still made the stops you still made all the stops (laughs) jerry only jerry would focus on in such an exciting detailed story such a minor detail that no one else would think of that's that's just him that's what makes him him yeah absolutely (laughs) It's, it's just such an incredible scene among many other scenes in this episode yeah, no, lots of uh, good physical comedy uh, in this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us, bidwabaspodcast at gmail.com. You can say hello on all forms of social media. We're on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. And uh, you can support us financially if you like. If you think we're worth your dollars, uh, we have a Patreon. That's right, patreon.com forward slash B-I-D-W-B-A-S-C. And just want to give a shout out to our patrons at the moment, Tim, Holly, Nakia, Jeff, and Kelly. And uh, we actually have two new subscribers, uh, a $2 subscriber. Greg, who's returned after many months. So thank you very much, Greg, for jumping on board. And we have a brand new patron. His name is Neil. Uh, He's pledged $10 per month to us. Yeah, no, awesome, awesome of you, Neil, if you're listening. Thank you so much. You've basically doubled our financial base, so we'll be able to retire now. Thank you so much. We'll be able to buy lunch now. So thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Once a month. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. And um, just a reminder that with Patreon, uh, we have extended it till June 1st, 2020, due to the ongoing situation. So yeah, head on over to patreon.com if you want to donate. Yeah, and as of June 1st, if you do sign up, we will. Uh, it will be charged from then. But uh, in the meantime, it is free. If you don't want to sign up, you still want to support us financially, we have a PayPal as well. And finally, if you don't have a few bucks to spare uh, as a one-off or per month, you can leave us a five-star rating or review uh, on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. It supports us a lot and uh, helps us with visibility and gets us out to other Seinfeld fans out there. Indeed. Also, if you are on Facebook and you want to uh, join what is soon to be the biggest Seinfeld group, uh, which is our group, Seinfeldisms. Type Seinfeldisms to Facebook and uh, join the fun. Indeed, yes, Seinfeldisms. It's a very fun page and uh, lots of new members signing up every day. 
So uh, be sure to join. Yeah, I think by the time you hear this, we'll officially be the biggest Seinfeld group on Facebook, which is just amazing. Giddy up. And uh, real life Seinfeldisms is something we do every week. So we talk about any intersection of our real lives and the show. Have you got any this week? None for me, unfortunately. What about yourself? Uh, I had one and I made a mental note. I was in bed, I think Thursday or Friday last week and something happened. I think my partner said something or I was watching something on a show and I made a mental note to say, that's a Seinfeldism, write it down. I didn't write it down. So I can't remember what it is. So I have technically had a Seinfeldism. I just don't know the details. I bet you she was watching Mad About You and you didn't want to. And you were sitting there all, uh, you know, pissed off like George. <laughs> yeah, no, look, if if my partner was a fan of Mad About You, we'd probably be broken up. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I'm sure Mad About You obviously I'm man. Obviously, I'm being facetious. Of but, course uh, you are. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Anyway, um, no, no Seinfeld isn't for me, unfortunately, buddy. But anyway, I'm sure you got a few Seinfeld news articles, my friend. Uh, what's happened in the world of Seinfeld this week? Yeah, two news articles. The last few weeks have been pretty Seinfeld news heavy, but back down to two. The first one, and this is a really, really nice thing uh, to watch if you're feeling a bit low, given the current uh, situation in the world. Jason Alexander, who's uh, isolating at his home in Los Angeles at the moment, just like the rest of us, maybe not in Los Angeles, but uh, definitely isolating at home. He put out a video, I think on his Twitter, Uh, And it's him playing a Billy Joel classic, New York State of Mind. He's singing and playing piano. And it really showcases his, uh, I guess, theatrical acting background. He's got a stellar voice. He's amazing at the piano. Uh, And he said that when Jason posted the video, he said that uh, he was inspired by thoughts of his former home uh, and all the family and friends that he has back in New York who are currently getting absolutely decimated by the coronavirus. It seems to be the uh, epicenter of the disaster worldwide, which is really sad. So if you are in New York or New Jersey, a special shout out to you for just going through such a horrible time. Um, Our thoughts are with you. And yeah, we, we hope you come through it. Uh, at some point and uh, things are you know the, the 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 sun shines a bit brighter in what is a very dark time absolutely yeah so all the best to all of you and uh, yeah going um, regarding Jason's video yeah that was amazing I watched that too oh my god he is very talented indeed yeah and I, I knew he could sing I mean he's a theater actor and most most actors can sing uh, even on a basic level but I didn't realize how vo- how good his voice actually is he, he sounds incredible he's the true triple threat yeah I mean actor singer piano player he's probably got a bunch of other uh talents that we don't know about probably just one of those people and he's and he's so humble and low-key like you watch him in interviews and he's just like yeah whatever like yeah. cool eh. but yeah stupid stupid jason alexander and his stupid talents damn i wish we saw him when he was in australia before all this stuff happened damn it yeah maybe now yeah i regret not yeah <laughs> i regret not going but uh we'll, we'll see him one day the second bit of news I've got is uh, this was actually fairly widely publicized sort of in the, I guess, the Seinfeld world and across uh, the gaming world as well. So two indie game designers uh, by the names of Jacob Janurka and Ivan Dixon. Yes, uh, another Ivan associated with Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they've created a, uh, I guess you could call it like a pitch or a, a pilot for a uh, like a late 80s, early 90s uh, Seinfeld uh, adventure game. It's just in the form of like a little video and it's to show you what it would be like if the game was fully developed. Uh, it doesn't have any official involvement with the show, uh, but what they're hoping is that they get greenlit by, you know, whoever owns the Seinfeld intellectual property and it is developed into a full game. And the idea would be that uh, it's a it's about half an hour long. It's about the length of an episode and uh, that it is modular. So they could add additional episodes, you know, which would translate to, I guess, levels uh, of the game. We put up a post on our Facebook, uh, I think late last week or early this week. So uh, 
uh, go check it out and uh, yeah, just just watch the video. It's really really cool. Yeah, it's really cool, and I love how they kept like the '90s art, like the pixel art. It's it's in the same vein as games in that era, like Monkey Island. So those kind of pixelated, choose your own adventure kind of style games and, and point and click. So uh, yeah, hopefully uh, hopefully Jerry or Larry gives the okay, or at least they can get a contract from you know Sony Pictures or whoever holds the rights these days, Netflix or whatever, and uh, they can go ahead and do it. That'd be fantastic. That'll sell. Yeah, for sure. I think. I mean, even if it didn't sell and it was just offered as like a fun free thing with just some in-game upgrades or advertisements or something to monetize it, that'd be pretty cool. But uh, yeah, hopefully it gets greenlit. Even if it doesn't get greenlit, the fact that they went to the effort of making it, I, I didn't realize that games had pitches or pilots. So I've learned something about gaming as well. Well, it is another kind of media or uh, form, I guess, or form of media. So you do need to pitch ideas to the relevant people, uh, much like a movie or anything, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I guess I just never thought of that. I'm, I'm not much into gaming, so I, my mind doesn't often go there. But yeah. uh, there you go. Well, well maybe uh, if the game does go out, I might do give it a review and uh, we'll stick it on our Patreon or maybe on our normal feed. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and that's all the Seinfeld news for the week. Very good, buddy. Let's have a really quick break. And when we come back, we are talking about some very funny secondary characters from today's episode, The Fire. I have notes on Toby. You're great. You're really great. Uh, also got notes on Ronnie K, the prop comic. Robin, who's George's episode girlfriend. And Eric, the clown. What about you? Uh, yeah, I've got notes on those four characters. Uh, and I have one or two notes on Robin's mother as well. I didn't catch her name, but uh, yeah, Robin's mother, who George pushes over. <laughs> <laughs> he's the coward and that he's left us to die. <laughs> there had to be a leader. <laughs> had to be a leader. <laughs> That's another glorious scene in that episode. It's just terrific. Anyway. I'd say it's one of George's lowest moments. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we talked about a couple of his lower moments a few weeks ago with the invitations, but this is definitely probably one of his most sinister. But anyway, let's take a quick yeah. break and we're going to come back and talk about the secondary characters from The Fire. Hello, folks. Matt McCoy here, a.k.a. Lloyd Braun from Seinfeld. And I'm telling you right now, I do not want to be a secondary character. Season 5's The Fire was episode 20 of that season, and that was first aired in the United States on May 5th, 1994, directed by Tom Sharones and written by Larry Charles. In this episode, Kramer pitches his idea for a coffee table book about coffee tables, and Elaine's co-worker Toby, she's played by Vianne Cox, just loves it. She loves it. It's great. It's really great. Uh, in fact, Yeah, she's too enthusiastic. A, a, bit, a bit too over-enthusiastic, indeed. In fact, the bubbly and effusive Toby is also in competition with Elaine to fill the vacant senior editor position. Kramer takes Toby to see Jerry's act, but she heckles him from the audience. An outraged Jerry later visits her at the office and gets his revenge, though it also leads to an accident that makes him out to be the bad guy. George's new girlfriend Robin, played by Melanie Chartoff, has a son and he agrees to help out at his birthday party. He overreacts somewhat to a fire in the kitchen showing a side of his character that she does not like and uh, <laughs> many of us laugh at and she doesn't like. Yeah, I think she, yeah, she saw him for who he really is, exactly. which is a scumbag. Yeah, just pushed a yeah, scumbag who just pushed women and children everywhere. Save himself. <laughs> and then blatantly lied about it. Yes. If he was on the Titanic, he would have jumped on the first lifeboat. Yeah, there's a scene in Titanic where the, the rich guy, Kate Winslet's, you know, uh, arranged husband, He, you can see him sneaking into one of the boats that's reserved for the women and children. That's George. <laughs> yeah, that's George. <laughs> Billy Zane would have been a good George. No, probably not. Yeah, it, yeah. Whoever, whoever the guy is that's played by Billy Zane, you see him sneaking in. I think he's at the back and he's got a, a coat or something over him so no one can see that he's a man, a rich man. Yeah, that's he's like George, but like old-timey George. <laughs> old-timey George, like maybe three generations before him. But actually financially successful and intelligent. <laughs> and he says to George, I'm just like you, only successful. Maybe he's a distant relative of George, but the intelligence and the wealth and success like skips a generation. So George, you know, George has got his scumbag gene, but he doesn't have his financial uh, success and intelligence 
Simpsons genes. Oh, maybe, yeah, I could see that. And then Frank, you know, he's not the brightest guy, but, you know, he's made a living for himself and he got married and he has his own home and stuff. So, you know, George just, yeah, uh, George became lazy. Yeah, he's made a, you know, a modest life for himself, but George, George doesn't even embody, like, blue-collar success. <laughs> no success. Nothing. <laughs> anyway, bit of trivia about the episode, my friend. This was the final episode to be written by Larry Charles. Oh, geez, I, I didn't know that at all. And this was the first TV episode that John Favreau worked on. First television appearance by uh, Favreau, and it was the start of a an awesome career, not only acting, but directing and producing as well, and writing. Yeah, mostly those three things. Yeah, definitely. But when we talk about Eric the Clown, yeah, I'm, I'll talk about his credits. My God, John Favreau. What an enviable career he's had. Yeah, no, he's, uh, he's, he's sort of a jack of all trades when it comes to entertainment. He's probably a good singer and piano player too, like Jason. Yeah, <laughs> like Jason Alexander, like we mentioned earlier. Yeah, probably. Yeah, he's probably a, a, a rare talent as well. Indeed. Uh, Larry Charles, the uh, like you said, the writer for the episode, said that it was inspired by a mental image he had of George pushing women and children. And then uh, based on that mental image, he built the whole episode around that. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's about as low as he can go. I think so. I think he thought, what's the scummiest George? And, and here we are talking about it. And not just like young women or, you know, even middle-aged women, old women too, like Robin's grandmother the one on the walking frame he knocks her over too yeah anyone in his way has gone down he's gone down yeah like the fire that <laughs> ravaged the oven and ravaged the kitchen <laughs> couple of greasy burgers <laughs> couple of greasy hamburgers <laughs> Anyway, um, the joke in um, the jokes in Jerry's stand-up routines are the ones about the remote with men and women. Uh, that was also in season two's The Baby Shower. Yeah, I remembered that it was in another episode, but I couldn't pinpoint which one. But it, it was definitely familiar. Yeah, yeah, I remember because we did The Baby Shower what like three years ago. I think when we first started, it was one of our earlier ones. And uh, yeah, I do, I do recall those jokes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, the final bit of trivia I have is that uh, the rivalry between uh, Toby and Elaine was inspired by the by the office politics uh, from the show that was filming next door. Don't know which show it was. I tried to find out, but couldn't figure it out. Apparently, one of the employees on that show, uh, don't know if it was cast or crew, uh, had recently lost a baby, and some of her colleagues uh, were jealous of the attention that uh, her boss was giving her. So because her boss was giving her extra attention and extra sympathy after going through something horrible, other employees were jealous and they must have been bitching about her behind her back or just expressing their envy. And uh, that that was taken along with the mental image of George pushing down women and children and created uh, an amazing episode. Holy shit, that's terrible. I know. <laughs> that's horrible. How can you fucking get jealous of someone like that? Losing a baby. Jesus. Yeah, What's I don't know. People, people? Are, people are petty. So why do you think Seinfeld's so? Why do you think uh, Seinfeld's so popular? Yeah, a lot true. of human beings are very petty. Indeed. It's relatable. Indeed, yeah. But I think if Toby was pregnant and she miscarried after running out, you know, from Jerry heckling her and stuff, that probably would have been a bit too uh, too rough. So yeah, it's probably it's probably why they chose the pinky toe. They're like, like it's something that's still a bit serious, but not as bad as what as it could be. You know, I can imagine a situation where the writers were thinking, how far away, like. We have to make Toby lose something. She can't lose a baby, oh, no. but how far can we take it yeah. so that it's still not dangerous territory, you know? Yeah. So they decided on the pinky. Yeah. It worked out. I can imagine them working their way from like a baby down to the pinky toe. They're like, okay, she loses a leg. Nah, too much. You know, a foot. Nah, too much. How about just a toe? Yeah, I think that's good. Oh, the big toe. You can't do the big toe. It's got to be the little toe. Yeah, the, the baby toe. The baby toe. That's it. <laughs> the one that goes wee, wee, wee all the way home. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's talk about Toby, huh? 
Yeah, let's do it. Played by Vianne Cox. She's known for the films Erin Brockovich, You've Got Mail, and Two Weeks Notice. I have a really oddball theory about her. I don't think Toby's a happy person. I think she actually hides. She she is over-enthusiastic to hide her anxiety and depression. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, mm. I didn't think of that when I was watching the show, but I would agree with it, you know, as you've said it now, for sure. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you notice there's like a few moments like Vianne, Vianne did a fantastic job as Toby, but I love how in, in there's some moments between her and Elaine when they're talking about, you know, the promotion and stuff where Elaine says something along the lines of, oh, you know, you could get the job, you know, and then Toby's like, I really want it. But when she says something like that, she's really serious. She's, you know, her bubbly tone kind of disappears in that moment and then it comes back. Yeah, and, and during that scene as well, uh, when she first mentions the uh, promotion to Elaine, uh, you know, she's trying to encourage Elaine to go for it. But I think she pretends that she's not going to go for it. And I yes. think she's almost like indirectly fishing for a, a return, a, like return encouragement. Yeah, she has very low self-esteem. And yeah, like I said, possibly other mental health issues as well, probably like anxiety or depression. So, and uh, yeah, I think she's just deliberately overly bubbly to hide it, to mask it from the world. Because obviously back in the 90s, it was pretty hard, you know, with mental illness. It wasn't really as, you know, mainstream, so to speak, as it is these days. Um, so I think maybe back then she just did it to kind of, um, yeah, hide her emotions, which is quite quite sad to think about. Yeah, and I think she boos and heckles Jerry and then can't take responsibility when he writes calls her out and says what are you doing you know i'm a professional don't treat me like that she kind of throws it back on him and says well you can't hack it if you're not gonna if you're not gonna take my heckling then you're not gonna make it in showbiz i've 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 struggled with severe depression in my life before and i at the time when i was at my lowest there was some element of me that wanted to bring other people down not in a mean way not i didn't go out looking to to make people feel like shit but when other people are up and you're down even unconsciously you sort of want to bring them down to your level so that they can understand. It's almost like you're trying to create empathy in them so that they understand what you're going through. It's this weird psychological process. And her treating Jerry like that when he's doing his act kind of reminded me of that. I think it's her taking out her frustration and depression and anxiety on him to kind of you know, it's not joy. She's not doing it for enjoyment. She's not trying to, it's not schadenfreude, but I think it's just her sort of expressing what she feels inside. Yeah, absolutely. You know, or project, yeah. projecting. Yeah, projecting. And she feels like because she hasn't been to a comedy club before, she thinks that that's what you actually do at a comedy club. It's almost like the circus, you know? Yeah, she's like a comedy club virgin. It's very, very awkward. <laughs> that's weird. It's like she's, yeah, she thinks she's going to like a circus or, you know, something like that. Yeah. It's crazy. You think Jerry as well, like, I mean, the, the sort of comedy he does doesn't invite hecklers Every time I think of hecklers and comedians, and if you go on YouTube and type in comedian heckler compilations, usually it's the more edgy, provocative comedians that invite hecklers. The ones who are a bit more family friendly or PG tend not to, whether that's just the type of fan or the material itself just doesn't warrant hecklers. But you think throughout Jerry's time as a comedian, he would have at least had a few hecklers, even if they were just booing him or just disinterested at the very least. The fact that he's so disarmed when he gets one heckler from a person that he's met, you know, he does have a brief relationship with her prior to going on stage he just seems so put off and disarmed you think you think because he's so quippy and sarcastic in life like when he's not on stage on the show he you know he's always he's, he's so witty he's always you know he can always sort of put people down you think he'd be in his element and be able to just sort of shut her down and get on with it but the fact that he's so disarmed is very it's very strange to watch as a viewer because he's a professional comedian well mind you he does have the actual uh, magazine reviewer there so he's aware that someone's there to critique him and i think this is at the stage of you know 
you know, Seinfeld in the semi-fictional universe of Jerry where he's starting to become like an up-and-coming comedian. Like he's kind of at the ascent. So he kind of wants to, you know, he's at the base of the mountain, so to speak, and he's climbing up. I think he knows um, that, you know, someone professional is there, someone really influential in the, you know, in the media who will be there to, to review him. I think that's probably why he's a bit more flustered when it happens. Because um, we have seen that, in, uh, we have seen that in a later episode, Steve, where the pilot was there. You know how he was doing the thing and then his, his annoying his annoying manager or assistant was like, oh, the pilot's in the crowd. And then Jerry's like, what are you talking about? Why do I care if the pilot's in the crowd? And then he sees the pilot and then he's, he doesn't do well. So I think Jerry, probably as a character, probably if he knows like subconsciously that someone is there, someone of what he describes as importance, I think he probably, if something happens to him and he comes out of his comfort zone, then maybe he can't quite handle the situation too well. Okay, so you would think, I know we're not talking about uh, Toby, but I feel like it's worth elaborating on because it's it's part of her uh, scene or she's part of the scene. But do you think if the reviewer wasn't there and he was just dealing with the heckler that he would have been, you know, he would have been smoother? He would have, you know, put her in a place or heckled back and just gotten on with it? Oh, good question. I mean, probably yes and no. I mean, maybe because... Well, if we if we can say that Jerry has had hecklers affect him before, maybe they haven't been as, you know, heavy-handed as what Toby was. No, because Toby's literally, like, even Jerry says at the end of the show, she says, Toby, you've been doing this to me since I started. You know, you've been yelling and calling and booing and hissing. You know, you've been doing this since I began, like, let's set. So maybe she hasn't really experienced, you know, he hasn't ex- experienced, like, that intensive heckling. Okay, yeah, right. Like, so it wasn't just one or two comments, it was... It was relentless. It was relentless. And I think also I think also because the reviewer was in the crowd as well, that probably affected him too. Yeah. Okay. No, that's fair. I guess just initially, you know, without thinking about it, it was just weird to see Jerry so put off when his job is to be sarcastic and witty. You think he could just brush it off or or throw some insults back to her, even if they're just lighthearted insults. But yeah, with the reviewer there and the fact that she just constantly was heckling him, yeah. obviously it was enough to, to sort of derail his set completely. And I think he understood when he met Toby just before he went on stage. I think he knew that something was going to happen. He was like, oh, <laughs> this woman's, I've got I've got a feeling about her. Something's going to happen. He probably even walked onto the stage thinking, oh shit, what's she, what's she going to do? Oh yeah, so maybe a bit of anticipation uh, of that happening created a bit of nerves as well. Yeah, it was a whole storm, you know, it was like, a, it was like, a melody of different things a medley i should say yeah no look things. yeah no look all good points back to toby you saying that it's evident that she struggles with depression or or, or uh, anxiety or both i think that's also shown when you know jerry comes to heckle her and she immediately just runs out of the office like she as soon as jerry turns up and as soon as he starts speaking she's just completely upset she's very sensitive and i think i think that fragile emotional state is linked to her uh, depression and anxiety yeah absolutely she when when she was in that moment there was the fight or flight response and initially she tried just telling jerry she was busy and then um you know jerry kept being relentless back at her and then yeah she flew rather than fight so uh yeah she she ran out of the office you know it's happened a few times the more we talk about toby the less i dislike her the more i actually have empathy for her i do find her very very annoying and she's a total punisher but you know we've revered a few characters where initially you think oh they're just garbage or they're very unlikable people but as we talk about them and sort of unpack who they are and maybe try and figure out why they are the way they are you gain some empathy that's happened for uh for toby for me for toby yeah i think so too i think with toby uh, you know when i watched the fire you know the last time i watched it was probably two three years ago before we did this episode and i've watched it twice you know for a review um yeah i remember toby being so annoying and like almost like a female banya of sorts but a really like over enthusiastic excitable banya you know like really more more intense if you know what i mean um but yeah just watching her and and, and talking about 
about what we just said. You actually don't mind her. I actually feel kind of sorry for her too. I'm kind of in the same boat as you. Yeah, I think on some level as well, she probably realizes that she's very intense and she probably puts a lot of people off, but she doesn't know how to not be like that and sort of tone it down to make her less uh, off-putting to people. She's you know, which I think therapy to help her through it, to give her the tools. I think it would just be, yeah, some skill learning via therapy in terms of just toning it down, literally toning it down. <laughs> yes. And and because she probably puts a lot of people off, I imagine that she wouldn't have a lot of luck dating because, you know, unless she met someone with the same amount of energy, it would be hard. It would be very exhausting. Even after one or two dates, you'd be like, oh, this is just too much. Like, it's just, it's like dating a wind-up toy. It's just, it's never ending. And I think that would just reinforce her depression. So kind of feel like she's stuck in a bit of a vicious cycle when it comes to a bubbly and overexcitable personality. Yeah, but at least Kramer, you know, we, we've mentioned many times that Kramer always goes for the uh, odd women on the show. And uh, obviously him and her and Kramer seem to get along really well. Yeah, I mean, Kramer's eccentric and he's high energy. I mean, he's got a more mellow personality and he just has sort of spikes of energy. He's not always at 100% like Toby. But uh, yeah, I can see their energies matching. And, and like we've said many, many times, Kramer's by far the kindest person and he's the most empathetic person out of the core four. And he generally sees what other people see as negatives as a positive in a person. So, you know, Jerry, Elaine, and uh, George doesn't meet her, does he? No, it's just no, it's just Jerry and Elaine. They both don't like her at all for, for obvious reasons. Mm. But Kramer, what he what they see as a negative, he sees as a likable trait. So, yeah, it makes sense that Kramer is the one that, you know, is attracted to her and takes her out on a date. And mind you also, um, you know, she's pretty keen on Kramer's coffee table book too. So that's another reason why Kramer's getting close to her too. She's hoping that Pendant Publishing goes ahead and publishes it, and eventually they do. <laughs> a couple episodes later in the opposite yeah i'd like to think that kramer and her maybe you know went on a couple of more dates but you know he realized that she was just too much you know even for him that's right but she eventually got promoted to the senior role anyway one thing i did notice as well is that she really loves the uh the 80s slash 90s like power suit all of the clothes that she wears even when she goes to the comedy club you know she's not on the clock she's still wearing like the shoulder paddy you know i'm an assertive businesswoman uh, garb, which, oh, yeah. you know, matches her personality. Oh, good, good, good catch. Good, yeah, good catch. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and her wardrobe is as colourful and as bright as her personality. So, uh, good good costume design, I think, there, for sure. Excellent. Yes, indeed. And a very great f- performance from Vianne Cox as well. She did really good in the role. Yeah, I'd, <laughs> I'd like to think, you know, in real life, she's probably the most mellow quiet person and then she just has this magical ability to turn toby on that would be an awesome skill to have yeah well that's what great actors do you know they're usually introverted people and then they if they have to turn it up they turn it up and they're very believable yeah i think that'd be an awesome skill to have in real life if you're you know someone who is introverted or takes a little while to develop a relationship with platonically or romantically where if you wanted to put someone off, like if someone was trying to be your friend or be your partner and you weren't too keen, just to turn this personality off so that you'd never hear from them again, it's almost like a secret weapon. Mm, yes, definitely. <laughs> it's like you're putting on a mask, so to speak, a, a voice mask. Yeah, you meet, you know, you meet someone at a party and for whatever reason you just don't get you just don't like their vibe. So you're like, I'm going to pretend to be Toby or someone like Toby. <laughs> you're great. And, uh, you're really great, Stephen. <laughs> I love this podcast. <laughs> and then, oh, uh, God, yeah, and then you'll find. I've got to kill this podcast now. <laughs> That's it. Sorry, guys. It's been great. Uh, yeah, enjoy all the episodes, but Bidwabask is dead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
no, we're going to keep going till the very end, let me reassure you. That's right. Let's keep going. Do you have anything else about Toby? No, but I have some notes on Robin. All right. Played by screen and voice actress Melanie Chartoff. Uh, she's most famous for in being in the TV show Rugrats as she played Tommy Pickle's mother, Dee Dee. You know, the one with the wild curly hair? Yeah, I used yeah. to watch Rugrats as a kid, but I don't really remember a lot of it. Okay. Yeah, she was the, the voice actor for Dee Dee. Oh, okay. Yeah. She was also on the sketch comedy show Fridays. That was the, uh, I think, the Saturday Night Live spinoff in the 80s. And uh, that's where she met Larry David and Michael Richards. So I'm guessing uh, she probably already, well, she already knew them. And that's probably one way that she got the role. I mean, there's, there's always, every time we talk about uh, actors, there's, it's not uncommon for them to have like a prior connection to Larry or, or Jerry or someone on the show. Indeed. And uh, Robin is another character who appears in the finale. She testifies against George by recounting the fire incident and her son's birthday party. Oh, I forgot all about that. Yeah. Yeah. You're I right. had to remember that too. I read that and I was like, oh, yes, of course. She's one of them uh, who testifies. A very, she's, It's a very brief appearance, but uh, yeah, she's in there. Yeah, I think I think it was pretty important to, uh, you know, to, to sort of build the prosecution case to have someone like Robin testify. Yeah, with something that George Sid did, you know, really terribly. Something so, <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I don't have many notes on Robin, but I guess, you know, she's a waitress at the improv. Um, she obviously met George while he saw Jerry do stand-up, you know? Like, maybe George was meeting Jerry after his set, you know, and she, he was waiting there, and then, uh, you know, George used his uh, moves on Robin, and, you know, Robin probably thought that he was a decent guy, and, uh, yeah, and they started dating. Yeah, I, I think... Um... Even before the fire, I think she's already starting to go off George a bit. When they're at the diner and uh, George is telling her son, who is unnamed in the episode, to get off the floor. I can't remember what he's doing on the floor, but George is getting frustrated and telling him to stop. He's eating. And then he goes on. That's right. That's right. And, uh... (laughs) You know, and he starts going on about Bozo and Robin is just like telling him, is just trying to shut him down. You know, even after one sentence about Bozo, she's like, George, stop it. Don't, you know, I think she's already starting to be a bit off George by even before the party. Yeah, her patience is really running thin. Like you can tell that they've been dating probably a few times. So maybe the first date or two, it was pretty good. And, you know, George was, yeah. you know, his manipulative self. Um, But then probably after the third or fourth time, I think Robin's intelligent enough to understand that there's something beneath George that's just come out that he's been trying to hide. And yeah, she's probably probably putting him together like a jigsaw puzzle yeah for sure she's slowly trying to figure out who he really is and then uh he shows his true colors i think she's a single mother as well yes. uh, she always seems very sort of i wouldn't say highly strong but definitely on edge she speaks at quite a high volume. Uh, she never seems relaxed. And I think maybe because she has to work long hours at the comedy club, you know, and at night as well, probably doesn't get to see her son as much as she'd like. And I think her wanting to put on a party with 25 kids, which, you know, does seem very excessive. Maybe that's her just trying to uh, alleviate some of her guilt for, you know, the, her job and and, and the, the life situation they have. Yeah, well, Jerry actually alludes to that in the opening um, monologue with the opening set he does. He, he mentions when kids have birthday parties and your parents pick your friends. You know, you have all these people and, you know, the mother or the mum and dad pick who comes to the party, even though they're not your friends. <laughs> they're like, these are your friends. So I think he's probably alluding to what Robin's like. Like, if we go by your theory, um, yeah, Robin's probably just picked. Maybe her son, because he's so boisterous and he's really naughty, probably doesn't have many friends. He's probably a bit of a reject in school. Um, so maybe, yeah, his mum probably just knows all the parents and says, okay, I'm just going to send invitations to, you know, these 25 kids. Um, you know, they don't really know my son or they don't like him, but, you know, they get free cake and food and they're probably pretty keen. Free hamburgers before yeah. they caught on fire. So, yeah, I get what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I think she's just trying to overcompensate a bit for something that she feels, I mean, not that she should feel guilty, but, uh, you know, sometimes people do and they, they try and address that by giving giving their kids things. Yeah, and it's probably why she decided to bring Eric the clown. I don't think her son likes clowns. I think 
think she was just trying to reach for like the next best thing. She was like, oh, I guess a clown goes to birthday parties. Maybe my son might like it. So, and because of that disconnect between her and her son, they don't really connect and she doesn't really know what he likes. So she just picks the next thing, you know? Yeah, I, I would assume that she just thinks, well, kids must like clowns, so I'll get a clown. <laughs> Maybe she didn't ask it. Well, gee, George is even more old hat. They think kids love Bozo the clown. <laughs> A clown from the 60s, man. Well, speaking of, I think we've just segued into uh, talking about Eric the Clown. Yes, Eric the Clown. Eric the Clown. Of course, this man needs no introduction. He's played by John Favreau, actor, writer, and director. And he has, as we mentioned earlier, he has produced several big films and TV shows. Um, He's produced all of the Avengers films, The Jungle Book, and uh, Disney Plus TV show The Mandalorian, which was a big hit late last year. He's directed Iron Man's 1 and 2, as well as The Lion King, that one that didn't do too well uh, last year, the really odd-looking uh, photorealistic uh, animated film, as well as the 2003 comedy Elf. Um, as an actor, he starred in Chef, which he's also written, and he's appeared in the film The Wolf of Wall Street, and he's played the character Hogan in the Iron Man and Avengers trilogies, as well as the latest two Spider-Man films. Nice. Happy Hogan. Yeah, he's done a lot. Yeah, Happy Hogan. He, yeah, he has. Like I said, a very enviable career, and uh, it's quite amazing how this was his first TV gig. Yeah, it's a good good way to start your, uh, you know, your entertainment career. Definitely. Yeah, he's a very uh, sort of memorable one-off character, isn't he? Yeah, for sure. We'll find out if he sits in our top 20 a bit later on. Indeed. Yeah, no, look, Eric the Clown, I fucking love Eric the Clown so much. <laughs> I know just, you do. <laughs> he's just amazing as far as I'm concerned. The fact that he just completely goes in on George about his obsession with Bozo, and rightfully so. I mean, this guy's, I think, you know, maybe he's just trying to, it seems like the, I mean, he even says that it's just a part-time job for him. It's not his career. It's not his life. It's just a gig. I think he's trying to make it in some sort of industry, maybe comedy or acting. And this is just a way to pay the bills and a way to sort of, you know, work on his acting skills or maybe work on his comedy skills. Cause there's, you know, a lot of skills from comedy and acting can translate into being a kid's clown, uh, you know, a party clown for kids. Well, actually, you funnily know. enough, Steve, I actually pictured him as a semi-fictionalized version of the real John Favreau. I think he was probably okay. a dude, you know, who started off small and he got his first gig as a clown. And then all these things worked up and he became a big time director and producer, Eric Favreau or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> That's like Eric a semi-fictional character inspired by John Favreau's career. And then he went on to do Star Wars and Avengers and all these big, big IPs. Turns out if you actually dig deep, uh, John Favreau changed his name from Eric to John in 1994. Is that real? No, you're kidding. No, I'm kidding. I, of course, I was going to say, that's weird. No, but I think yeah. it's funny how, like, we see, you know, you see the, you know, because usually aspiring actors and musicians and stuff, they start off with these small gigs and then they just get that one big break and then they go big. I think Eric the Clown, you know, as much as he didn't like being a clown, I think he had big aspirations to go really big. You know, I think he had, like, big dreams to do, like, massive franchises, much like the real John Favreau. And uh, probably yeah. 20, 30 years later, he achieved his dream. That's right. Giant dreams and giant shoes. Indeed. And giant shoes that put out those greasy hamburgers. That's my favorite line of the episode is Eric the Clown put out the fire with his big shoe. <laughs> his big shoe. I <laughs> know. <laughs> I can just imagine him whacking a fire on the stove with his big clown shoe. The image it just makes me laugh. It does. Well, and he saved the day of sorts. Yeah, he did. My other favorite line of the episode is when uh, he has had enough of George's shit and he's going in and him and he's like, you hung up on some clown from the 60s, man. The 60s, man. So good. I know. <laughs> he's got that. Yeah, he almost says 60s. Sounds a bit Hebrew, doesn't it? 60. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I love Eric so much. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's a very enjoyable one-off secondary, much like Toby. And uh, yeah, I, I love I love that scene where um George is in the back of the ambulance and he's got the he's got the respirator on and he's yelling, "It was an inferno in there, an inferno!" And then they all run out to get him. <laughs> the angry <laughs> the mob. The Rob, 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 Robin's mother's like, "That's the coward that left us to die!" And all the kids jump him to try and attack him. <laughs> and then you see Eric the Clown trying to go him with his and you notice how his shoe is actually it's great continuity his shoe's actually in his hand and you can see like burn marks on the bottom did you notice that? no I didn't I'll have to rewatch great, that great continuity there I noticed that because then yeah because when George says to Jerry in the next scene that, that, that Eric put it out with his shoe I was like oh shit actually Eric's shoe was a bit black underneath from, from the smoke there you go that makes sense yeah no Seinfeld does continuity well so that uh, is not a surprise I'm surprised though that he didn't try and whack George with his shoe I mean he could have reached him he's a big uh, guy it has got a big reach and a big shoe. Oh, maybe he had a bit of a conscience. Maybe he wanted to kill him, but he saw all the children there and he's like, oh, it wouldn't be a good look. It wouldn't be good for my career if I just killed a man in front of these children. I don't think my, that's bo- true. my boss will be too happy with yeah, that. That's, yeah, that's true. I guess, uh, yeah, if he's trying to keep kids happy by being a clown, he probably shouldn't beat the shit out of a, even though George deserves it, beat the shit out of another human being with his giant shoe. Indeed. It would be comical, but it wouldn't be nice. Yeah, later on maybe, you know, like when, when all the kids, you know, go home from the party and Eric hangs around and he beats the shit out of George. And, uh, I think that would be justified. And he's got like a flower on his on his suit and it's got like mace in it. <laughs> he sprays George in the face <laughs> with it and then smacks him in the shoe. Real nasty. That sounds like something the Joker would do. Yeah, the Joker, yeah, it'd be arsenic or acid. <laughs> it wouldn't be mace. It'd be something a bit That's more true. deadly than that. Uh, let's talk about the last secondary character, uh, Ronnie Kay, the prop comedian. Indeed, he's played by actor, stand-up comedian and writer Dom Herrera. Uh, he's known for The Big Lebowski. Uh, in 2001, he was nominated by the American... American Comedy Awards as the funniest male stand-up comic. Oh, so he's actually a stand-up comic in real life. He is indeed, yeah. I don't know if he's a prop comic. Um, I've, I've never seen him perform before, but yeah, no, it says he's a stand-up comedian, so there you go. Makes sense. I mean, he has the timing, like even when he's playing Ronnie Kay and he has the exchange with Jerry, you can see like he's, you can kind of tell he's a comedian, like just the way he times his lines and stuff. He's just got good timing. Yeah, I think he, at the turn of the century, though, or sorry, the turn of the millennium or century as well, I think he would have stopped being a prop comic. I feel like December 31st, 1999 is when all prop comics cease to exist. I can't think of a prop comic in the context of the year 2000 or, or, or any time after that. To me, they're such a relic of, of the 90s or the 80s. What exactly is a prop comic? Like, do they just, is, is, is the bulk of the humor through their props, I assume? I've never seen prop comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, okay. oh, who's that redhead guy? Uh, Someone head, oh, redhead, carrot no. top, carrot, carrot top. Oh, okay. yeah, they just they they incorporate props into their into their set. So their jokes, you know, they they have punchlines and they're typical jokes, but they sort of they dramatize or uh, punctuate their jokes with props. Right. You know who does that really well? Like that Australian outfit, the Umbilical Brothers, but they don't have props. They yeah. rhyme everything, but that's like prop comedy done yeah. right without the props. Yeah, it's like your voice is a prop. It's more it's more theatrical than I guess props. Yeah, but, it's um, more pantomime. It's, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, I just. I couldn't take a prop comic seriously. No, I mean to me that to me they're just so cheesy and so dated. Yeah. So I feel like I feel like Ronnie K. If he was self-aware enough, as soon as it was midnight on December thirty-first, nineteen ninety-nine, he would have burned. Maybe would have gotten Eric's big shoe and beaten his bloody props to to dust and become a real comic. Well, if that if that wasn't going to end his career, September eleven two thousand and one would have. Because uh, what about that gun that he had? Yeah, you know, that prop gun. That looked like a real gun. I can see why George was really scared. Imagine you can see like pre nine eleven. You know, you couldn't do that these days. Obviously, you know that'd be terrible. But you see the gun that he pulled on the bartender as a joke. Jesus Christ! I thought it was a real gun. I would have been scared too. Yeah, it's a pretty yeah it's a pretty realistic looking uh, prop That's for sure. Black revolver. It's scary. Yeah, guns in Australia aren't 
much of a thing. So, you know, no. even a prop gun would probably scare us. Absolutely. Even one of those guns with the orange bits on them, they scare me too. <laughs> <laughs> The toy guns. But yeah. The prop guns. But yes, Ronnie K, I mean, obviously he knows. I think with his relationship with Jerry, I think Jerry knows of him. He probably likes him as a person, but I don't think Jerry respects his comedy. I don't think he just respects his repertoire. You know, he probably yeah, Jerry's he a bit seemed... more intelligent than that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think I think he sees it as a bit below him, for sure. Yeah. He looks down his nose. Yeah, I think you're right in that he likes him as a person. He seems to be very affable with him and and, and sort of talk at his level, but from, as a, from a professional point of view, definitely sort of looks down his nose at him for sure yeah absolutely but yeah he's only in two scenes he thinks his nostrils are really big uh even though you know they're, they're getting bigger <laughs> that's the difference for him um and, and obviously george I, I mean even george knows who ronnie k is i mean because I'm, I'm sure george has frequented the improv many times to go see jerry or whatever but you know he seems to know ronnie k yeah maybe or you know he looks different because his nostrils are smaller yeah <laughs> his nostrils are smaller <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's it. Did you get a haircut? Yeah, that's why. Nostril. Did, that's why. Yeah, that's why I didn't recognise him when he uh, pulled the gun out. That's right. That's right. You know, and George might know him as well. He might just be. He might be known in New York or just in the comedy circles, or he might even know who he is through Jerry. You know, I'm sure Jerry would have mentioned him. Hey, there's this prop comic I work with sometimes, and you know, even if he hadn't seen him or met him, he would have been aware of who he is because, uh, you know, Ronnie K is a pretty memorable name. Very easy to remember. Yeah. yeah. Um. That's yes. It. Rest in peace, prop comedy, 1981 to 1999. Or whatever it was. Yes. On December 31st, 1999, Prop Comedy and New Metal both died a very quick death. And this episode is dedicated to both of them. <laughs> yes. In memory <laughs> of New Metal and Prop Comedy. Yes. That would be an odd thing. Imagine corn with like toy guns and stuff. That'd be a bit odd. Or, you know, those wacky well, mallets. Limp biscuit with, uh, you know, with rubber duckies. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the production was borderline prop comedy. You know, they were pretty wacky with their costumes and all the all the bits and pieces they used and all the all the flair and stuff they'd have on their microphones and instruments. So, That's you know, the two aren't completely unrelated. Indeed. But no, they did die a very sad, slow death. Prop comedy got, like, shot in the head. It died a quick death, whereas, you know, new metal just got slightly more overweight over time and it died a slow death. Yes. Yeah. But their death sentence was definitely Midnight. Uh, the turn of the millennium. Turn of the millennium, indeed. Why? If it wasn't Y two K, it was uh, the people that killed him. <laughs> Do you have anything else about any other secondary characters? No, that's all I have, buddy. How about we take a really quick break and we're going to find out where the fire sits in our top Seinfeld episodes and if any of today's secondary characters make myself or Steven's top 20 characters of all time. We'll be back. And everybody is screaming because the driver, he's passed out because of all the commotion. The bus is out of control. <laughs> so I grab him by the collar. I take him out of the seat. I get behind the wheel. Now I'm driving the bus. <laughs> You're Batman. Yeah, yeah, I am Batman. Okay, uh, where does the fire sit in your list of episodes we've done so far? Well, Stephen, out of 126 episodes we have done, the fire has surprised me quite a bit, and it was way, way better than I remembered it. Number five wow number five. five yes it's in my top 10 my top five it is like wow. i told you off air before we started recording it was just much like toby it's just relentless but in a very funny way every scene hits and it doesn't let up like i love seinfeld episodes that just keep hitting and it stays on a high note basically the whole time i love those kinds of episodes they're some of my favorites yeah so the fire it was it's a, a truly underrated episode uh, it was of course in the classic era of seinfeld but not many people remember it as a classic and i think i think most people remember it more for the 
the George scene with the fire more than anything, but there's just everything in between. Like there's Kramer's monologue, there's Jerry's heckling bit, there's, you know, Jerry going to bag Toby at her office, and there's just all these things, all these cogs that happen in the in the machine, you know, that make it all keep going. And ah, oh, it's just very well done. And and it's a shame that it was Larry Charles' last episode he wrote. I wish he wrote some more. But it's good that he went out with a bang. Yeah, he went out uh definitely on a high for sure. He was on fire, literally. Nice. <laughs> Metaphorically too. <laughs> What about you, my man? Where is it? Number uh, one, it comes number two, at, or one? No, number twenty-one. Twenty-one. So, oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. I rated it highly, but yeah, de- not not top ten material for me. Oh, but oh, still, I really. Meant, I, I thought you were going to say like number nine or number eight when you said like highly. I was like, oh, this is going to be a top ten, a top ten for Stephen. No, well, it's still in the top 15, 20% of episodes. So you know. Mm. Yes. Do any of the characters appear in your uh, top 20 secondary characters of all time? Unfortunately, as much as I loved most of the secondary characters today, none of them made my list. Toby, she'd be like 21, 22 on my list, so she just missed the cut. It's not a reflection on the secondaries. I think they were all great, but uh, yeah, no, unfortunately, didn't quite make my 20, despite the fact that I really liked them. What about you? Uh, yeah, of course. So Eric the Clown comes in a top 10, the first entry in a long, long time, probably oh for God. at least six months months yes months uh he comes in at number four for me oh number eric the clown. four eric the clown jeez alton yeah. Venice, jack clompus uh, whoever you know yeah so is. and geez eric the clown is in that high esteem he's in that amazing group definitely so uh top five for me joe from the mango four is eric the clown number three is a record store owner from the old man oh yes, uh, number yes. two yep number two is frank costanza and number one tied is alton bennis and jack clompus that's right yes very good very good man well, i'm glad so, i'm glad you finally updated your top 10 yeah so my top five is now officially all angry you know different levels of angry but all angry men nice all you need is uh, seven more and you'll have the 12 angry men, much like the film <laughs> from the uh, 50s or 60s. It didn't get that reference, but uh, okay. I'll tell you about it one day when you're a bit older. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that was another episode of Bidwabas. Thank you so much for listening. As I said, it's a really tough situation at the moment with the coronavirus issues and wherever you are around the world, we do appreciate the fact that, you know, you're all of us are isolated in our homes and Stephen and I, you know, we're recording through Skype, which is not the best way of doing it for us, we don't think, but at least the show must go on and we do appreciate you taking 45 minutes to an hour of your time every week listening to us while you're at home so now we, we're very grateful for that yeah no uh this time is sort of i think it's allowed a lot of people to uh reflect and uh appreciate what they're grateful for and uh figure out what is worth being grateful for so uh, this podcast is definitely something that is you know meaningful in our lives and hopefully meaningful in yours so if you do listen yeah thank you and uh, we hope your life isn't too fucked up considering how fucked up things are Yes, no, we uh, hope you're doing okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you want to talk to us, you can email us, bidwabasspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're on all forms of social media. You can find all those links uh, in the show notes. If you want to support us financially, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash bidwabask. All of our uh, tiers are free until June 1st. So for $1, 2 or $10 a month, you can subscribe and get everything for free. After June 1st, we will start charging. Uh, so sign up for the tier you want and you can change between tiers. If you decide to increase or decrease uh, what you want to give to us after we start charging in June 1st. And uh, finally, if you want to support us non-financially, you can leave us a rating or a view uh, on whatever podcast app you choose. Indeed. And uh, my name's Ivan. And I'm Stephen. And next week, we're doing a pick of mine, Season Six's The Chinese Woman. Nice. I thought, uh, I thought she was a... I thought she was a Chinese woman. <laughs> she was a Chinese woman, Donna Chang, yes. We'll be talking about Donna Chang and some other secondary characters from there. So until then, uh, you take care and we will see you next week. Catch you then. Bye.